So we wanted to let you know on the big news. So we've talked about focus. We've aligned it with our business. We've brought it to you and we want to make sure that we're doing the same thing. And so now we have developed everything, moving ourselves all into multifamily. We've stopped our flipping. We stopped our other real estate businesses because that's what we align with. And that's what really allowed our business to grow was focus. And with that, we're transforming our podcast and starting a new podcast called the Multifamily Foundation Podcast, which is going to align with all of our goals, bring you that same actionable, great content with some golden nuggets you're going to have to check out, but it's all going to be multifamily focused. And you love it here. We have Multifamily Monday. But this podcast is going to stop. And within two weeks, we're going to be starting up Multifamily Foundation Podcast. We want you to go over there. We want you to like and comment and subscribe to the page because it's going to bring you everything you have of actual content, great guests. We're going to teach you how to underwrite, how to find deals, how to find the money, how to close deals, what to do once you find the deals. So there's going to be a ton of golden nuggets, especially in these first episodes that are coming out. So within a little under two weeks, definitely, definitely, definitely get ready for it. And if you want the updates, go over to our Facebook page, Multifamily Foundation Group. Get ready for this awesome, awesome launch. Multifamilyfoundation.com is our site. Multifamily Foundation Group is our Facebook page. So if you're ready for the Multifamily Foundation podcast, we'll see you soon. This is the Real Estate Foundation. Your show for massive action with proven results. Raise your life and your legacy with real estate. So before we dive into the show, we wanted to say thank you so much to all the listeners out there. It's always great to have you dive in with us on all these great topics we were to have able to have. And if you want to hear more about us, go to urusiholdings.com. You can find everything about us from projects we're working on, more about our team members, how we break it up, and all the resources we offer. And if you want to invest, learn more about investing with us there. Also, make sure to check out our multifamily meetup if you're local here in New Jersey. We run the New Jersey Multifamily Investment Meetup, and it happens to be every second Tuesday of the month uh, here in North Central Jersey. So if you're in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, make sure to check it out. And lastly, if you want to learn more about investing in apartment buildings, go to multifamilyfoundation.com. All right, check out the show. Well, hello again. Welcome back to another edition of the Real Estate Foundation podcast. Psyched to be back with you. We have an awesome show today. We're going to have a ton of action-packed items. We're going to talk about some, something after close to or maybe even right at 400 episodes, something we haven't talked about before. So we have Hakeem Valles on the show. Hey, Hakeem, how you doing? Jason, I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming on. And, and so Akeem is a real estate investor, entrepreneur, professional speaker, and retired three-year NFL veteran. Akeem had a three-year NFL career with the Arizona Cardinals, the Detroit Lions, and the New York Giants. And congruently, Hakeem has been investing in real estate for the past seven years. Currently owns 13 units across three states and speaks on digital media, real estate, and financial literacy at top universities and conferences across the country. So, Keith, thank you so much for being here. Talk to us. You're, you're, you go, you're playing in the NFL, uh, but along, you, you start thinking about and you have this, this idea about real estate. What, what was it that, that, what was the attraction to real estate? And what, what was it that, what was that first step to get involved? So, it actually kind of started back before the NFL. So, my, my degree in college um, was business with a concentration in real estate. Um, so it was pretty much, you know, there's people coming back to get their, I believe CCIM, like, uh, the renew it and things like that. Those are the kind of people who are in my classes. Um, 
but that was that was my degree and then at the same time the girl I was dating back in college her dad had just started a house flipping business so he took me under his wing and while I was in college I probably flipped about 10 houses in North Jersey oh so get out I kind of got to get I what I call it almost a rich dad poor dad experience kind of being out there in the field flipping houses and then going back in the classroom honestly learning how to be an employee at like a large commercial real estate firm like learning all the terminology of cap rates and NOIs and ROIs and IRR, everything, yeah. but in college and, you know, learning how to underwrite, you know, massive multifamily and commercial deals in college was, was really, really, you know, awesome hands-on experience. Um, but when I, you know, got after three years of, you know, flipping houses after me and his daughter broke up, that entire relationship ended on the house flipping side of things. Um, but it wasn't until I got back and when I got, when I made it to the NFL, it was actually like right before I went to the NFL, I kind of had like a, a moment of, you know, if the, like I was training, I just put my MBA on hold and it was January through April. I was training at a training facility in Martinsville, New Jersey. And like I had the moment of like, man, if this NFL thing doesn't work out, like I'm back on my parents' couch. Like I don't, I'm not flipping houses anymore. Like mm. I'm kind of on my own. And that was actually when I first discovered Bigger Pockets and discovered their podcast, and really started to just educate myself on real estate, on different ways to kind of get into the game and things like that. And I decided, you know, whatever team I get picked up by, I'm going to do real estate there. And if I don't get picked up by anybody, I'm going to do real estate right here. And when I went to the Cardinals, I realized it was a little too much going. It was too fast paced in terms of playbook, learning the playbook getting acclimated to a new city um, to kind of jump right into it. But I realized, you know, I was, I was paying two grand a month on like a month to month lease there. And I'm like, I'm going to spend $24,000 this year on rent. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that was when I read after reading, uh, I think it was Brandon Turner's book on just rental property investing. And, learned about house hacking and I bought my first fourplex um, in Phoenix mm -hmm. and lived in one unit and rented out the other three and lived for free. And it was, it was a, it was an awesome, you know, hands-on experience um, getting to actually be out there in the field in the dirt. You know, my teammates thought I was nuts because I had section eight tenants living below me. That was and, my next question. Did they think you were crazy or what was the feedback from the team? It was, it was kind of mixed and it was honestly one of my biggest regrets of, of, of when I was in the NFL is not telling my truths and my story and talking about what I was doing while I was playing a lot more. I mean, I talked about it to the people I was kind of in my inner circle and, you know, some thought I was nuts and then some were super interested, but didn't want to put the work in, you know, per se, in terms sure. of actually learning and just, instead of just, you know, throwing their money at something or at an investment or just, you know, giving their money to their financial advisor who puts it into real estate deals and things like that. So it was, it was kind of mixed feedback. Like not many people were willing to, you know, essentially get in the dirt, you know, take out 30 different investors for coffee um, after, you know, making a post on bigger pockets and, you know, actually living it, you know, walking their properties, learning their SOPs and, you know, figuring out how to make a game plan for yourself. Do you feel with the NFL that, that, you know, the failure rate with a lot of people just going broke after being in professional sports is, is so high when we all see it. Right. And shocking for some of the people, do you feel it's the perception of people that they're, they're going to play forever and this, this kind of income stream is never going to shut off or, or is it a lack of financial education or, or what do you, what do you feel really drives this, this point where so many people can't find their way after they leave the NFL? 
Um, it's it's definitely multifaceted, um, and like you know, one angle of it is a lot of guys who are in the NFL, you know, have come from not necessarily high income backgrounds, and if you're an athlete, like a like a professional athlete, chances are your entire life you've dedicated to sports. Every summer you didn't have a job, you were playing AAU or travel sports. And once you got to college, you couldn't make money unless you were like me and you bent the rules and flipped houses. Um, but you, you weren't allowed to have a job because you had summer classes, you had everything. And then you had the NCAA rules that would get on top of you if you got a job. And then now you take that same person who, you know, back in college, they're not teaching financial literacy. Uh-huh. high school they're not teaching financial literacy it's something they don't teach in school and you give that same person not only is it you know most jobs you're getting paid 52 weeks out of the year unless you're a teacher or an investor and you get paid in whether it's you know dividends or you get paid in like huge chunks but the nfl instead of getting paid 52 weeks out of the year you get paid 17 weeks so you take a rookie minimum salary of four hundred and fifty thousand dollars and divided by 17, that's $26,000 a week. Then hmm. you give a young 22-year-old, 23-year-old, and I encourage, because a lot of people kind of have a negative reaction when they hear this, but I encourage you to actually have empathy and like imagine if when you were 22 years old, when if you were making $26,000 a week, mm-hmm. you, would be, you would feel compelled that, you know, my bank account has 26000 in it. I could spend 10000 this week and I'd be okay because I know I'm mm-hmm. getting twenty six next week. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again. And then January 1st comes around and your team doesn't make the playoffs. And now you've built up the spending habits of someone who makes $26,000 a week. And week one of the offseason comes around. Now you're not in season anymore. You're not, you know, in season, you're, you're, mostly, you're, you're mostly spending money on tickets, flying people into games, and expensive dinners. But now you're in the offseason, and now you got you go back, you're 22 years old. Your friends just got their first job and they're not really making much. And now you're the big baller per se. And you're paying for dinner. You're paying for vacations. You're paying for essentially everything. And it's, it's, it comes down to some ego. It comes down to some sort of insecurity. But now you've built those habits of someone making ten or making $26,000 a week. But in reality, if you're making four fifty a year, you're really only making... 8,000 a week ish. And, you know, now same thing off season comes around OTAs come around and like, we're back in the building and you start to actually see the guys who start to run out of money because I mean, they're like slaving almost for a spot. They're cutting in front of line of people so they can look coach, look at me. Cause if they don't make the team come next September, then they can't afford their light bill. They can't afford their mortgage and things like that. And like, you know, another, I think, angle and approach where that, you know, low, that, that high statistic of players going broke, it comes from a lot of guys have been essentially babied since they were in college. Like if you didn't come from a small time school and you went to like a big time school, there's guys who have so much popularity on campus that they, they physically don't, they can't go to class because it's too much of a distraction for the rest of the school. So they're getting online tutored. Um, they're getting everything taken care of for them. Um, you know, I wouldn't say homework's getting done for them, but they've got, they've got every, all the structures are in place for them to succeed. You have to try to almost fail. You get to the NFL, it's the same thing. All the structures are in place in terms of my license just got 
my license just got uh, expired. Someone takes care of that for you at the DMV. Mm-hmm. Um, anything, laundry, things like everything, can, everything can be taken care of for you. But people tend to throw finances in that category as well and start to ignore those finances. And that's when you always see the guys, I don't know why I went broke. I don't know how I went broke because they haven't paid attention to their money because they've had someone take care of everything up until this point. And now money is just something that they've always thought and known that they've had. But then that's how you hear all the stories, the famous stories of a bunch of guys going broke. You know, and, and I appreciate that. And I don't want to spend too much time because I want to dive into your story, but it just, you think about, you know, you're on a level where you're always working at perfection all your life. And, and for that, it's your identity is tied to that. And all of a sudden, once you leave this sport, I mean, it, it's just like just turning a faucet off. Now you have to create this new identity. A hundred percent. And that must be just beyond, I, I, and you forget that you're said so young. And when you look at people on TV, I mean, you have this point where you forget just like some of these people are going right from high school, literally, and think about where we were in high school to the pros and just to have so much put onto you that the, the pressure that you have to be set up for and then have it taken away for so many different reasons. Absolutely. And I didn't get, I didn't even get into identity. I was, I was another facet I was going to mention. I just probably forgot. And it's the same thing. You're, everything's been football your entire life. And you get home from the facility at six, you put on whatever games on that night, you watch sports center, going to bed, you wake up, you do it all over again. And like that becomes your routine. It's football, 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 football. And as soon as football's gone, you're completely lost. Like I, there's countless, countless, you ask, you ask any retired guy, the hardest part about retiring and being away from the game is like the transition and like, yeah. like figuring out their identity and who they actually are. Wow. Well, I appreciate that. And let's just, let's just dive back into your real estate. What, what did you do with the fourplex and what, what did you learn from it? So I learned a lot of different things. I learned that I hate management. Uh, <laughs> okay. I didn't outsource it to start just to kind of save a few pennies, pinch a few pennies here. And I managed it. And right when I was in the middle of doing like a cash for keys kind of eviction style type of thing, uh, I had just gotten cut from the Cardinals and gotten signed to the Lions like the very next day. And I, like my fiance was back home and had to kind of deal with all of that. And I'm trying to learn a new playbook and it was honestly a mess. And I learned that I don't like to be that, you know, middleman. So now my property manager, he doesn't call me for an issue that's below $500. Um, but I lived in one unit, rented out the other three, lived for free. And because it was FHA loan and technically you have to live there for a year, I got cut, I think, after seven months of living there. So the rest of the year, I, I Airbnb'd it instead so I could keep the address. And airbnb it almost made double. Like it would have rented for $750 at Airbnb'd wow. anywhere between $1,400 and $2,000 a month um, just because it was not too far from downtown Phoenix and Scottsdale. Um, and like that was, it was, I mean, I still own the property today. I owe probably, it's it's got, because it was an appreciating area and like now there's a lot, I get probably a text message or direct mail every single day of people trying to buy in that neighborhood. But cause I mean, the property is worth about three fifty now and I only owe two forty on it. Um, which is pretty, pretty sweet. Um, just considering I only put down $13,000. It's amazing. And that's the power of real estate. And so you, you transition there, you're up to 13 units now. Talk to us about what, what kind of properties you, you've been working on now and what you're, what you're currently after. So I'm currently, you know, we're, we're focusing on smaller multifamilies in the 20 to 100 unit range. Um, and we're, we're syndicating. So we're getting, you know, higher net worth individuals, credit investors to, uh, you know, commit capital to us finding these different properties in these different markets. 
Um, and outside of that, I've also been raising capital in the cannabis industry as well. Um, so I, I, I own 40 acres in uh, Michigan um, and it's designated to get cultivated, like cultivation warehouses on the capacity to put 42 of them on the land. Hmm. And uh, it's kind of, it's a real estate, more of a real estate play than a cannabis play. I mean, just from essentially buying it, we, we purchased the land for about a half a million um, two Aprils ago. And in anticipation that cannabis was going recreational in Michigan and in November it went recreational and we got an offer on that same land for 7 million. And wow. instead of cashing out, we're taking it as a long-term play and going to develop these different warehouses by partnering with different cultivators, some of the top cultivators across the country. Um, and then I'm doing the same thing in Massachusetts, um, partnered up with a, a group who's got two dispensaries and a uh, cultivation that's going live in the next few months. And um, I'm raising the capital for that as well. So talk to me about this process. When, when you're going to Michigan, right, you're two years ahead, then thinking that it is going to happen there. So what's the downside? How do, how do you prepare yourself against the downside in an area? Absolutely. It was, we, so it wasn't, it wasn't this, it was, we were six months ahead. It was April to November. It wasn't April to two Novembers later. Okay. Um, but it was, honestly, it was, it was like a, it wasn't really gambling. It was just more just knowing and knowing your state, knowing the people in the state. So where Michigan was at the time, Michigan is the, most people don't know from in terms of cannabis, you think California, California, you think Denver, you think Oregon, you think Washington, you think states like that. Um, Michigan was the number two state um, in terms of medical users of cannabis. So you take California, for example, um, 20, I think 21 out of every thousand citizens of California had a medical card. And in Michigan, it was 18 out of every thousand citizens. Um, so that's from, from a ratio perspective, Michigan was number two in terms of users. Hmm. And the Michigan was historically a red state. And the Republicans wanted to stay in the House. And they wanted to, wanted to keep their seat. And in order to keep it, like, don't like I could be wrong in a couple of these like facts here. Sure. Where our heads was was they in order to keep their seat, they had to go for cannabis. And the Democrats were for cannabis as well, because the state as a state all wanted to be cannabis. So we knew regardless they were gonna pass it. Um and so it happened. And value just spiked up instantly after the referendum passed. Incredible. And so when you're looking for this land, it was already zoned and had the, had the, um, the rights already in place? Is that? So, yeah. So there's, it's actually a town called Pinconning in uh, Michigan that's uh, just a historically cannabis-friendly town. Hmm. Um, and my partner, to make a long story short, his, one of his family members uh, was in relations with another lady who just had all this land. And she was... I'm not sure if you're familiar with like, uh, they called it like a USDA bond, like to pay off farmers who had farmland, but to not farm on it. So you didn't overproduce in a certain area and then cause oversaturation of products, driving prices right. down. Sure. But she had land like that, but it was also zoned for, to be, to extract and cultivate cannabis. It was in the, the, the circle on the map and getting the bond off wasn't really a big issue. And, we already had a he my partner already had a prior a prior relationship to her through his family member hmm. 
and we made a deal with her. She still lives in the house and we own the land now. Incredible. And so yeah. going, going to Massachusetts, which stood out to you about that state? Um, it wasn't more of the state. It was the operators. Um, I wasn't necessarily, you know, necessarily looking and like, I want Massachusetts. It was more, I know cannabis is the next emerging market and kind of where the opportunities align. And just through posting a lot of honestly content every day on LinkedIn, um, I got connected with my partner there now, um, who was just kind of wanted to connect with me and get my thoughts on the things he was doing. And I kind of, you know, told him what I was already doing in the cannabis space and how I could add value and by bringing capital. And I had a really good architect who can, uh, can uh, do 3D renderings of spaces like that for a very low price. And uh, that was kind of my value add prop. And we've been kind of ripping and running since. That's oh, incredible. So when you're speaking to investors, what do you, how do you, have two different menus or how do you put this menu with what you're talking yeah, about, about multi-family syndication and also talk in the cannabis space? hundred percent. It's more, I'm still not in the space where I'm necessarily soliciting. It's more just relationships of prior relationships of people I know. And sure. it's kind of just knowing your circle and auditing your network and kind of literally, you know, you got 150 names in front of you. Who do you think will be good for this? Who do you think will be good for that? And, Essentially, because of my content that I put out, everybody knows that I invest in real estate. And it's more like I'm looking at my network, like who, who knows that I invest in real estate would also be interested in the cannabis space. And just, just from that, it's kind of the, the connections have kind of gone through people after going to someone for it, whether it's a professional athlete and then them having a couple guys that they played on a former team with who also wanted to get in the space because it's not necessarily like there's never a shortage of capital. There's always just a shortage of deals and operators that you want to be aligned with as opposed to just, Oh, cannabis, let me throw all my money at it. How do you structure a return structure with investors? Is it similar to what you're doing in the syndication space for multifamily? Yeah, it's very simple. Like even like when you're almost analyzing like a, for example, like sending out like a pro forma, you know, in the cannabis space, I'll sometimes use some of the, just, just so I can get to my numbers faster. I'll use, cause I'm so familiar with some of the syndication. I use Michael Blank syndication software mm-hmm. um, by just almost ignoring some of the words. Like this isn't a property management fee. This is a so-and-so fee and kind Got of it. just so I can get to my, my bottom numbers faster. Um, but it honestly depends, you know, like on the deal, like, and on, on our deal for, uh, Massachusetts, our investors are, I think the total raise on that might be like 1.6. And with that 1.6, the investors will have a 5% equity stake in both dispensaries and the cultivation. Um, and the, we have like a manufacturing license as well to do like edibles, to do, um, you know, topicals and things like that and different manufactured products to throw into your dispensaries and other third-party dispensaries across the state. So it'll be like a 5% equity stake and different states like Michigan, for example, is kind of has like a loophole on banking and you kind of have to go through credit unions and it gets really, really complicated on that end. Um, But essentially with one of the credit unions that we're working with, um, you know, how it works is all of your investors essentially take out a personal account, you know, with this credit union and, how the transportation industry works in Michigan is, you know, product goes from the truck 
to wherever you know the product's being dropped off at and then cash goes straight from the dispensary to the federal reserve and then that gets tapped in goes to goes through the credit union and it's a weird loophole but it's that's kind of the angle we're taking at it right now interesting um and the, our investors you know likewise are going to take out personal accounts through this credit union that's was started out in colorado interesting so so where there's a will there's a way you're saying absolutely most people <laughs> are kind of shy shy away yeah. and it's i mean it's it's eventually going to be there where it's federally legal and just in the place of you, it, like people, it's like, there's kind of twofold. People are like shying away on a wait till it's ready. And I think that's okay. And people are like, I want to get in first. I want to get in first. And like, I think with this industry, it's not about who gets in first. It's who does it right. And then who does it ethical and who builds the right teams around it. So it doesn't inevitably implode in front of you because you've kind of built it with the wrong people. Yeah, I agree, right? It's setting up the process, but be willing to pivot as it comes along, noting that Absolutely. things are going to change and ultimately find the yes where, you know, you can stand there and get no a hundred times across, but if you're willing to figure out, okay, we're going to go through and go to the credit union, the credit union's going to have this process. Ultimately, it will probably change, but right now this is the process we use. So we found- A hundred percent. As it goes. And when I'm raising capital, even too, for cannabis, like I'm not, I want almost not ultra high net worth individuals, but- this is like money that you're comfortable with losing in that sense. Whereas real estate is obviously way more secured and backed by a lot more. You can have it set up in so many different ways. So like, you know, I have friends like, Hey, cause that know what I'm doing, but like, Hey, can I invest like five grand into this? I got this. I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm not going to be that guy who takes your $5,000 and loses it, you know, in that sense. And to like, you know, throw it in a stock and some of those cannabis stocks. Cause a lot of, I mean, actually just dropped, I think yesterday or, today but a lot of the stocks are that's where you throw your kind of penny change at that you're you can kind of throw smaller amounts at versus you know a large project project where there's a lot more risk involved yeah and, and i absolutely agree right the, the smaller denominations to put in there um besides just the paperwork side on, on the on the general partnership side is that we want people to be invested where they have this as this is money that they have allocated for investment so we don't want people to put their last five thousand in hold exactly it's like, it's like we're betting on black or something like that yeah exactly um so wh- where do you go wh- wh- what does the next five years look like on your business on yourself so it's you know from a real estate perspective it's you know, now I'm being, now I'm retired. It's really building out my systems and processes until they can, you know, actually be perfected because I, I'm sure, as you know, it's one of the hardest, most friction, friction, you know, parts of real estate is building your teams, building your system. So you can actually have a, a structured day where everything is actually very, more, a lot more fluid. And with me, like not, not only am I doing real estate, not only am I doing cannabis, but I'm also speaking. And I, I try and do, I try and speak, you know, maybe twice a week, three times a week. Um, and on top of that, I'm doing advisory work for a couple of startups as well um, and raising capital in that space. And it's, it's, it's a lot. So with yeah. me, it's honestly organizing everything and like not necessarily looking for a, an, an arbitrary number in five years. It's, really just trusting the process and just continuously growing and growing and growing, you know, from a real estate space. And I'd like to be at over a hundred units in the next five, five years. Um, you know, from a cannabis space, I'd like for my operations in both States to be, um, you know, up and running and successful. And hopefully we're in a space where we're getting closer to being federally legal. 
Um, and, you know, from a speaking space, you know, I'd, I'd love to be just kind of, uh, of, of, uh, almost not a household name, but a household inspiration for guys like me for not for everybody, but almost that athlete who's looking to, you know, not define themselves by their sport and figure out their passion outside of what they're doing and actually build their brand and a meaningful brand while they're playing versus after they finish. I love it. I love it. We're going to transition a couple short form questions. We appreciate your time. Um, what's, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice. Probably say the fortune is in the follow-up. Sure is. You know, meaning we're presented millions of opportunities, millions of, of, of ideas, anything, but we don't, follow up you know like you know for example uh i can't remember what her name is but she's going to be speaking at the conference that you're speaking at in colorado and like she sent me a message like hey if you're going to be there like make sure you stop by and like take a selfie and like that's important like follow up on something like that because you don't know where that relationship could lead you and like the smallest follow-ups on kind of everything like because not everyone is you're not like people we start to think of ourselves as the center of the universe and like oh that person got us like in that sense, like they're not going to remember to follow up with you. Like if you really want to get to where you want to go, mm-hmm. it honestly starts with following up. Like that's not only following up with, you know, someone who says follow up, that's following up on advice, following up on what you said that you were going to do in a sense of you said that you were going to send an email to this person, follow up and, and do that after the phone call. And like once you can get to that place of honestly, just almost becoming a machine in that area of your life of just following up, it makes a lot of things easier and a lot more opportunities come a lot more clear. I absolutely agree. What's your real estate superpower? My real estate superpower is relationships. I think I can really take the business out of real estate and the nervousness and the, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Hakeem, kind of out of real estate and bring it to just more of a friendly conversation where everyone's comfortable. Um, and it's something that I've always, not always, because in the house flipping world, I think it's more of a blue collar world, whereas you get to, the larger kind of commercial space, it can get, you know, really uptight. And I think I can, I kind of bring a more personable personality um, into the game that can kind of switch things up. What's a tech tool that you use that's vital to your business? A tech tool that I use is honestly, it's an app called InShot. And I think content is vital to your business anyway. And, Oh, I, I think I sent, I made that you video. You sent this to me. You did. It was awesome. I, do, I can do everything on InShot. Like people kind of put content creation on a pedestal. And honestly, all you need is a cell phone to start with. Like you can record amazing content just on your phone and then you can edit it and make it look really cool all on this app called InShot, whether it's breaking it down into the right, you know, frames for, whether it's for Instagram or IGTV or LinkedIn and then adding subtitles to it and, adding an upper third title to it. Like people put those type of things on a pedestal, like, Oh my gosh, that's so hard. And don't even like try and like download and try and do it themselves. They've already just kind of, that's not my department. I don't do that. And I think Mm. we need to all start thinking of ourselves as media companies first and then whatever our passion and purpose is. 
Yeah, I love it. We're, we're our own brands, right? And so people, are, if, if they see you're consistent in yourself, your image, what you say you do, everything aligns, well, that's one step forward to them feeling comfortable to being part of, with, with you on your future deals, future acquisitions. So well said, well said. Well, Akeem, thanks so much for being on the show. For, for listeners, what's the best way to connect with you and follow you? Um, on all social platforms. So my Instagram is at Hawk, H-A-K, Vallis, V is in Victor, A-L-L-E-S, and then the number 80. Um, that's my Instagram and Twitter. And then uh, LinkedIn is just my first and last name, Hakeem Vallis. Um, I get back to everybody. It might take me two weeks, three weeks, but I'll inevitably get back to every single person. So just reach out and just honestly, it goes back to my first advice of fortune is in the follow-up. Like mm-hmm. how many podcasts have you listened to and you've listened to someone and thought like, damn, that was some dope advice. Like I would love to talk to this person. And that person ends the episode with, Hey, you want to talk to me? I answer everybody. I answer text message. I answer phone calls. Shoot me in the max is that this or do that. And like how many people actually follow up? That's right. Like, I reached out to Akeem, right? I reached out to you and said, hey, man, uh, of course, you want to be on a podcast, but I also asked you about how you're doing subtitles and you got back to me. So <laughs> that's so real. That's, that's super meta. That's super meta. <laughs> I mean, I was like, yeah, I'd love, I, I've, I've been, I was thinking about making a video, but it was really hard to get almost, it's hard to do it and make it short because it takes a long time to do yeah. it. Um, but there's obviously hacks. There's, and I'm, try, I'm trying to get, I do a lot of this stuff on my own right now because I'm myself building a media company. Mm-hmm. And I think before you hire out, outsource and pay for different things, you it's imperative that you become dangerous enough at every single thing yourself. Great point. So you can actually know what the value of it is. And now you can one, now you can one, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, scale teacher, it. show a skill exactly yeah, teacher, it, show yeah. it to someone who doesn't even know how to do it versus yeah. even hiring out whereas i can teach my mom how to do subtitles if she wants to stop working at where she does you know what i mean like yeah. there's so many more so you can take it to so many different more angles whereas if you just like i think outsourcing is very important um but when it comes to those type of things like get dangerous enough because in 2019 it's cheap enough and easy mm-hmm. enough to get dangerous enough yourself Yes, yeah, is great. Well, Hakeem, I love the word of show win today. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing so much great information with the listeners. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you for having me, Jason. Awesome. And for everyone listening, thank you. And again, if you like what you hear, go over, give us a five-star rating review. If, if there's things that we can improve on, give us content. We want to always make this better. Thank you so much, Hakeem. Thank you for a great show. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.